Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien is going to devote an entire section to what it's titled as children. And he's going to ask a central question. Is there an essential connection between children and fairy stories? And to get to the point, he's actually going to say, no, not really. And he's going against the prevailing opinion of his own time, I would say as well to some degree of our our own time, much later, and maybe the century before him as well. And so he starts out by saying that this is actually falling under the scope of one of the three questions he wanted to ask, what are the values and functions of fairy stories now? So if it's confined to children, then the value of fairy stories is really confined to those of that age. So he says it's usually assumed children are the natural or the specially appropriate audience for fairy stories. And, you know, he criticizes those who say things like this book is for children from ages of six to 60. Tolkien doesn't want us to remain children at age 60. He thinks that there's a problem with that. And so he says, is there any essential connection between children and fairy stories? Is there any call for comment if an adult reads them for himself. He says, yeah, adults can study whatever they want, but what about reading fairy stories? Is that childish? Is that immature? And so in examining this, he's going to say there's an error of false sentiment that winds up being committed here. And that's because some people think that there's a natural connection, not just between children and fairy stories, but the minds of children and fairy stories of the same order of the connection between children's bodies and milk. Not everybody drinks milk in adulthood, but children need milk to grow and for their bones and all that sort of stuff. And Tolkien wants to combat that. He calls this false sentiment at best. And he says, one that is therefore most often made by those who, for whatever private reason, tend to think of children as a special kind of creature, almost a different race, rather than as a normal, if immature, members of a particular family and of the human family at large. And then he points out another thing that's really important. He says that the association between children and fairy stories is a matter of what he calls our domestic history, meaning that this is not something that has been the case forever. This has arisen historically, and it's a matter of how we understand children and homes. He says fairy stories in the modern lettered world have been relegated to the nursery as shabby or old-fashioned furniture is relegated to the playroom primarily because the adults don't want it and don't mind if it is misused. It's not the choice of the children which decides this. Children, he says, except in a common lack of experience, they are not one as a class, neither like fairy stories more nor understand them better than adults do and no more than they like many other things. They're young and growing, so they have strong appetites. And so the fairy stories as a rule go down well enough, he says. But in fact, not all children and not all adults have a taste for fairy stories. Some may never have it as children or adults. So this is really important to point out as a preliminary. Now he goes on and he tells us that 
It is true that in recent times, fairy stories have usually been written or, and he puts this in quotes, adapted for children, but so may music be or verse or novels or history or scientific manuals. And then he tells us that this is a dangerous process, even when it is necessary. So... Tolkien is not a fan of producing fairy stories that are sanitized, that are made safe for children in the way that we might particularly associate with Disney or with so many other things as well. You know, we could talk about boulderization, meaning taking a good story and then removing the juicy elements from it so that you're wound up with, you know, something that's not the same story at all. And it loses a lot of its force. A little bit later on in this, he talks about, it is true that the age of childhood sentiment has produced some delightful books, especially charming, however, to adults of the fairy kind or near to it. But it has also produced, and he's got this wonderful phrase, a dreadful undergrowth of stories written or adapted to what was or is conceived to be the measure of children's minds and needs. The old stories are mollified or bolderized instead of being reserved. The imitations are often merely silly, pig wiggery without even the intrigue or patronizing or deadliest of all, covertly sniggering. You're offering this to the children and you're like, <laughs> you stupid kids, right? And it's a sort of patronizing that goes on. He says, I won't accuse Andrew Lang of this, but certainly he smiled to himself and certainly too often he had an eye on the faces of other people over the heads of his child audience. So, you know, this is a real culture critique that Tolkien is engaging in at this point. And, you know, we should talk about Andrew Lang. So if you're not familiar with who he was, he brought out this entire succession of books about fairy stories, and they are all associated with particular colors. And he was quite popular. Tolkien himself read him. And he says something very interesting about Lang to, to start with. So he says, collections of fairy stories are by nature attics and lumber rooms only by temporary local custom playrooms. Their contents are disordered and often battered, a jumble of different dates, purposes, and tastes. But among them may occasionally be found a thing of permanent value, an old work of art, not too much damage, that only stupidity would have ever stuffed away. And then he says, Andrew Lang and his works are not lumber rooms, but what are they like? stalls in a rummage sale, or what we might call a flea market here in the United States. He says, someone with a duster and a fair eye for things that retain some value has been around the attics and box rooms, right? So this is the person who collected stuff from all these attics. His collections are largely a byproduct of his adult study of mythology and folklore, but they were made into and presented as books for children. And then he says, you know, let's think about Lang's books. So he's going to criticize Lang at a number of points, but this is a critique that reveals something positive as well. He tells us that the introduction of the first of the series speaks of children to whom and for whom they're told. They represent, he says, the young age of man true to his early loves and have the unblunted edge of belief, a fresh appetite for marvels. Is it true, he says, is the great question children ask. Tolkien is going to consider each of these in turn. So the first thing, belief and an appetite for marvels. 
Tolkien says Lang is confusing the two of these. They're being treated as identical or closely related. And then Tolkien says these are actually radically different. Though the appetite for marvels is not at once or at first differentiated by a growing human mind from its general appetite. We all want marvels, wonders, things that are, oh, this is amazing, right? That's not the same thing as belief, though. So he goes on and he says, it seems clear Lang was using belief in its ordinary sense, belief that a thing exists or can happen in the real primary world. Now, can happen, that's possibility, right? So to believe in something is to believe that it was the case or is the case or will be the case or that it is possible for it to be the case. And Tolkien goes on and he says that if this is true, then I fear that Lang's words stripped of sentiment can only imply the teller of marvelous tales to children must or may or at any rate does trade on their credulity. The lack of experience, which makes it less easy for children to distinguish fact from fiction. And Tolkien is treating this as if it's like, you know, you're basically tricking children with these fairy stories. He goes on and he says that children are capable of literary belief. When the story maker's art is good enough to produce it, this state of mind has been called willing suspension of disbelief. We've all heard that phrase, have we not, to talk about what happens with fiction. Tolkien says that's actually actually not a good descriptor for what goes on. What really happens, this is what Tolkien says, is that the story maker proves a successful sub-creator. He makes a secondary world which your mind can enter. This is really important for fairy stories and for fantasy for Tolkien. Inside what he relates is true. It accords with the laws of that world. You therefore believe it while you are as it were inside. The moment disbelief arises, the spell is broken. The magic or rather art has failed your back out in the primary world again, looking at the little abortive secondary world from outside. So it's not a willing suspension of disbelief so that we enter into the story. Rather, the craft of the storyteller creates a world that we do enter into. And for a while, while we're in that world, while the enchantment holds, we believe it and we see it as true. And then if it's not done well, maybe we never have that effect in the first place. Now, he's going to go on and he says that, is it true is the great question children ask. They do ask that question, I know, and it is not one to be rashly or idly answered. Tolkien himself had children, right? But that question is hardly evidence of unblunted belief or even the desire for it. More often it proceeds from the child's desire to know what kind of literature they are faced with. They want to know what kind of story are we actually telling here? What does truth actually mean? And Tolkien thinks that children don't have all of the concepts and words to articulate this, but that's what's going on in there. He also criticizes Lang for, well, let's call it a certain romanticism of the times before. He goes on and he says that I was one of the children who Andrew Lang was addressing. I was born around the same time as the Green Fairy Book. The children for whom he seemed to think that fairy stories were the equivalent of the adult novel and of whom he said their taste remains like the taste of their naked ancestors thousands of years ago and they seem to like fairy tales better than history, poetry, geography, or arithmetic. And then Tolkien says, this is a wonderful line, 
What do we really know much about these naked ancestors, except that they certainly were not naked? <laughs> so we're talking several thousand years ago. Uh, we're not talking about ape people wandering around, scratching at themselves, you know, maybe putting on a little bit of skin from a pelt once in a while. No, no. People were wearing clothing in the past, and they also were engaging in the sorts of things that Lang is saying, oh, you know, they had fairy tales as their substitute. They were not interested in these other things. And Tolkien says that our fairy stories, however old certain elements of them may be, are certainly not the same as the people of the distant past. Yet, if it is assumed that we have fairy stories because they did, then probably... We also have history, geography, poetry, and arithmetic, because they like those things too. And only somebody who doesn't actually know the history of ideas would say the sort of thing that Lang is saying here. But it's kind of a common idea, isn't it? Tolkien also talks about moving away from a focus on possibility and thinking instead about desirability. He says that for children of the present day, Lang's description does not fit my memories or my experience of children. Lang may have been mistaken about the children he knew, but if he was not, then at any rate, children differ considerably, even within the narrow borders of Britain, and such generalizations which treat them as a class are delusory. I had, this is Tolkien telling us about himself, I had no special wish to believe. I wanted to know. Belief depended on the way in which stories were presented to me by older people or by the authors or the inherent tone and quality of the tale. And he says, fairy stories were plainly not primarily concerned with possibility, but with desirability. If they awakened desire, satisfying it while often wetting it unbearably, they succeeded. And he tells us a little bit about what he was into. You know, he didn't really care about Alice too much. Alice in Wonderland, Treasure Island left him cool, as he said. But the land of Merlin and Arthur was what he was into. And best of all, the nameless north of Sigurd and the Vulsungs and the Prince of All Dragons. Such lands were preeminently desirable, Tolkien says. So this is uh, an important thing to attend to as well. And Tolkien tells us some other things about his own taste, which are quite interesting, I find. He says that, Important as I now perceive the fairy story element in early reading to have been, speaking for myself as a child, I can only say a liking for fairy stories was not a dominant characteristic of early taste. A real taste for them awoke after nursery days and after the years, few but long seeming between learning to read and going to school. He goes on and he says that I also liked a whole bunch of other things, history, astronomy, botany, grammar, and etymology, right? Poetry, he said, he was insensitive to and skipped it if it came in tales. He only came to appreciate poetry, Tolkien is somebody who writes poetry, when reading Greek and Latin later on. And he says that, a real taste for fairy stories was wakened by philology on the threshold of manhood and quickened to full life by war. Tolkien fought in the First World War and somehow that experience, that brutal experience, that mature experience, that horrific experience made him appreciate fairy stories much more. There's another point that he makes that I think is, is very, very interesting which has to do with goodness and badness and justice. 
So skipping ahead a little bit, he says that I don't deny that there's a truth in Andrew Lang's words, even though they're rather sentimental. He who would enter into the kingdom of Fairy should have the heart of a little child. He says, well, that possession is necessary to all high adventure into kingdoms both less and greater than Fairy, but humility and innocence, this is what the heart of a child must mean in such a context, do not necessarily imply an uncritical wonder. Children can be very realistic about this sort of stuff, and even more important, nor indeed an uncritical tenderness. Chesterton once remarked children in whose company he saw Metrolink's blue bird were dissatisfied because it did not end with a day of judgment, and it was not revealed to the hero and the heroine that the dog had been faithful and the cat faithless. And then Chesterton says, for children are innocent and love justice, while most of us are wicked and naturally prefer mercy. And then Tolkien goes on and says, Andrew Lang was really confused about this. And he tries to, you know, defend the slaying of the yellow dwarf in one of his stories. And then he goes on and he says that, here we go. Lang sends the criminals as he boasts to retirement on ample pensions. That is mercy untempered by justice. And what does Tolkien think that children want? They want justice. They want to know who's the good one, who's the bad one. And they want to know that, not just because they need the world divided up into black and white or something like that. Children can actually have quite sophisticated moral judgments, but they want there to be some sort of reckoning within the stories. So that's kind of an interesting point as well. It connects them with adulthood, perhaps. And then finally, Tolkien himself is going to say that, to answer this question, is there an essential connection between children and fairy stories? No, there is not, because they are not just for children. He says that if we use child in the good sense, it also has legitimately a bad one, we must not allow that to push us into the sentimentality of only using adult or grown up in a bad sense. It also has legitimately a good one. The process of growing older is not necessarily allied to growing wickeder, though they often do happen together. Children are meant to grow up, not to become Peter Pan's. If you don't know who Peter Pan is, Peter Pan is an eternal boy who takes some children out of our primary world into Never Neverland and has all sorts of cool adventures. But sooner or later, we all have to grow up. We can't be Peter Pan's. It's That's actually bad for us. He says, we don't have to lose innocence and wonder, but we have to proceed upon the appointed journey, the journey into adulthood, into maturity, right? He says, it is one of the lessons of fairy stories that on callow, lumpish, and selfish youth, peril, sorrow, and the shadow of death can bestow dignity and sometimes even wisdom. And so he says, we need to think of fairy tales as something that should be read by adults. So he says, if adults are to read fairy stories as a natural branch of literature, neither playing at being children, nor pretending to be choosing for children, nor being boys who would not grow up, what are the values and functions of this? And this is where we move into the other topics. So it's pretty clear that Tolkien thinks fairy stories are not primarily for children. They are primarily for human beings. And those human beings can be children. They can be adults. And children should eventually grow into adults. The question is what kind of adults they will grow into. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.